I'm gonna do uh, a little cake tease and then I will bring up the first storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, this was selected by me. Um, it's got chubby hubby ice cream, vanilla ice cream, Reese's Pieces, and crushed Oreos. Technically they're Trader Joe's, JoJo's. Um, <laughs> they're good, right? Yeah, they're delicious. They're so good. The, have you had the peppermint stick ones? See, this is how I meet people in the grocery store. <laughs> okay, and um, so we always outsource punny names, and so the punny name for this is, I've remembered, chubby hubby, Chris Christie's Crushed VP Dreams. Hey, yum's the word, haven't you heard? The yum's the word, it was started by a bird my name is robin and her hair has lots of curls actually i blow it out a lot two stories some awkward like wedding the bed next to your boyfriend pretty funny and absurd like your boss tickling your side boob so welcome all you nerds and cool people too this is for everyone except kids yum's the word Hey everybody, welcome to Yum's the Word. I'm Robin Gelfenbein, and at the top you heard a clip from our five-year anniversary show. Now, I don't usually pick the flavors, but since it was our anniversary, I did. And if you haven't been to a live show, usually the way it works is we choose birthday people the month before at the live show. So we just had our live show last week, and I said, who's born in October? And we choose those people. And not only do they get to choose the flavors in one of my homemade ice cream cakes, but they get to see the show for free, and we give them reserved seating for their entire party. So it's really fun. Um, the other cakes I made that night were, there was one um, with Speculoos ice cream, which is this cookie butter flavor. Um, if you've ever been on a Delta flight and they serve those Biscoff cookies, which are so yummy, that's kind of like what cookie butter is. Anyway, so that one had Speculoos ice cream, sea salt caramel gelato, crushed ginger snaps, and crushed graham crackers. And this was around the uh, Olympics, so we named it Greg Speculuganus. That's for people from the 80s who probably know that reference. Uh, I also made a chocolate chip cookie dough one. It had chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, chocolate ice cream, donuts, and crushed Heath Bar. And that one we called Donut Mess with Michael Phelps. He sets the Heath Bar very high. And then the last one I made had mint chip ice cream, cookies and cream ice cream, fudge, crushed Oreos, and chocolate sprinkles. And that one was called Mint Oreo Speedwagon. And Oreo was spelled O-R-I-O for the Olympics. You can see pictures of the cakes and all kinds of fun clips from past live shows on our Instagram at yumsthewordshow. Okay, so for today's episode, you're going to hear two more stories from our five-year anniversary show. Plus, we're going to give you a little taste, a bigger scoop, a generous spoonful of the live show with some fun audience bits, and we're going to sprinkle in a little Mad Lib story that the audience created. This is a fun thing we do at every single show. Our first storyteller is a dear friend of mine, Sandy Marks. Sandy has performed at Risk and Story Collider, and she's a seven-time Moth Story Slam winner. She's also the creator of the solo show, You'll Be Sorry, which just 
to me sounds like such a Jewish girl's lament. This is her story about the crazy lengths she went to to live up to her nice Jewish girl stereotype. So I'm very happy to be here, Robin, because this is one of my favorite shows because it has the best audiences. And cake. I mean, come on. And I'm 60. All right. I can only milk this for a couple more days, then I'm just gonna be fucking old 60. All right. So, all right, this is obviously a true story. I'm gonna bring you all back. So when I was in high school, I grew up in Forest Hills, and at Forest Hills High, there were two kinds of girls. There were the nice girls, mostly Jewish, whose hair grew out, not down. <laughs> and then there were the badass bitches. We called them the hitter chicks. And their hair just kind of grew high. Okay, so I won't get you wondering which group I was in. I was the nice girl. We were the ones, we wore like Bonnie Bell pink, like lost sticks, and we would tape our hair down with this pink perforated tape, like that would make a difference. We were so hideous. And we wore, we didn't wear like the bad girls. They were wearing push-up bras and ankle bracelets. I was wearing like what they called a training bra. I don't know what we were training for. We had nothing. And, and we had like none, we just, we had no game. All right, these girls had serious game. And I just wanted to be one of these girls, but we were just total losers. So like our activities mostly involved babysitting, like regular gigs. We thought we were really good. We were like young businesswomen. And then we, would, we were always like starring in the high school musicals. We were like, we were like leaky assholes. And the bad girls, they had like real skills. Like they could roll a joint with one hand while smoking like a Marlboro Light with the other. And they were like, they had like the resting bitch face way before anyone knew what that was. I mean, they were like really, like they were hot, okay? And we tried to emulate them, but we couldn't. And when we wanted to go rogue, it was different. Like when they went rogue, they were like in Puerto Rico for a long weekend to get something taken care of. When we went rogue, I would like lose my retainer. It was like, we were just, okay. Then on like Friday nights, they hung out. We thought, well, we could hang out. We're, we're cool. So we didn't get the memo where to go. So we would hang out. We would bring our like wine coolers and Boone's Farm apple wine, which was still a thing, like in a brown paper bag. And we would hang out in front of the Forest Hills Jewish Center. <laughs> like Jewish boys that were just as boring as we were and we all thought we were so cool like sweet meanwhile my favorite girl Patty Migliacci she was at the pizza den probably giving a hand job in the parking lot and those guys were so fucking hot they were like juvies you know they were like thrown in some like baby prison for a while because they were like dealing pot or something I don't know but they were they were really cute. Like this one guy, Bruce Raps. Everybody loved him. He like kind of walked like a gangster when he was 14 years old. We love these kids. So I thought I'm going to be friends with these people. I want to be bad. So I had. I did. I loved it. So I targeted Patty Migliacci. She was my favorite. So one day I finally got up the courage 
in assembly when everyone has to wear a white shirt. We had to wear white blouses in assembly, and all of my friends had on our training bras, like 28 double A's, and they all like opened up the buttons, you know, and they're like pushing their shit up, and they they were just so hot. And I went up to her and I wanted to like talk to her, and I accidentally must have touched her. So this was the communication. I accidentally touched her, and she whips around and she says, "You're dead after school." <laughs> I was so in love. <laughs> she talked to me. I'm dead after school. Okay, wherever you want me to meet me. So, all right, things weren't great. All right, but my friends and I, we did our best. We were in the shows and we did okay in school and we planned our careers for college. Well, they were like going to like beauty school or trade schools. I don't know where the fuck these girls were gonna go. They were gonna get pregnant, have babies. They'd be on like a future VH1 show. But back then we didn't have that glorifying of being pregnant when you're stupid and 17. All right, so. High school's over, I get through college, and I'm still the nice girl. My hair's still growing wide, it's not growing down. I'm still in a training bra. And I mean, I'm not giving up. I'm a virgin through high school. I am just like the prudish little girl. But I got set up on a lot of dates after college. And I had this, this was my brand. When someone would say, well, what's Sandy like? She's really nice, she has a good personality, and your mother will love her. I know, it's not like, like I wasn't a femme fatale, I wasn't sex pot stuff, I was just, your mother will really like her, and she's got a good personality. Like Miss Congeniality, like one of those dogs at a be local beauty pageant. So, so what I would be set up with, with these really nice guys, you know, they were like me, they were like losers. So, and I'd go out with them, and I thought, well, this is the best I'm gonna get, because I still haven't grown any tits, and I'm still a virgin, and it's fine. Okay, now here was the thing, though. I was a really nice girl, so I had this one sort of fallback position. I never broke up with boys, ever, because I didn't like confrontation. I didn't want anybody to yell at me. I didn't want anybody to fight with me. So I had it figured out, and it's easy, okay? You, there are two ways. One, you act like you really like them, and you really need them. They'll dump you. And then, the, it's easy, easy. The other way is just be reserved, don't return all their calls. This was before we had phones to text. Maybe not show up on a date, be a real bitch. You know, be really douchey, and eventually you get the favorite thing that you want them to say, which is, it's not you, it's me. And that's victory, because that means I didn't have to do anything, and I'm off the hook. And I did that, I did that for years, and I was very good at it. And I always felt very good about myself for being what I thought was really nice, because I never wanted to hurt anybody's feelings. Okay, so then, I get set up with Larry Levitan. Okay, let me explain. Larry Levitan, Jew, very handsome. He's got like good short Jewy hair, but nice. Doesn't that way, it's this way. It's like, he's cute. But here's the thing, he's very wealthy, okay? He lives, his parents live in Great Neck, which is on Long Island, and they're in the electronics game. They're like the royals of all the switch covers on every light switch in the country. You can't go on or off without seeing Levitan with a little lightning bolt. That's his family. They are very, very important people. 
and Larry is going to go into this electronics business. So this, I mean, I, if I had wound up with him, I would have been up to my tits and dimmer switches. <laughs> this is like big. So it's not so bad. And you know, I was broke. I never had any money. I was at NYU. I had to pay for it myself. And I wanted to be an actress, so I knew I was never going to make any money. But I still, there was a part of me that thought, no, I don't want to be the dimmer switch queen. I don't want to live on Long Island. I don't want to raise Mrs. Levitan. I don't want to raise those. I knew, and I was young. I was a kid. I was 23 years old. But he wouldn't dump me. And it went on for months and months. And I'm finally at the six-month point, I think, all right, you're going to have to wear your big lady pants. You're going to have to tell him that you can't see him anymore, even though this is not something I'm equipped to do. So he invites me to an Islanders game. Okay, now if you guys, have you ever been to a hockey game? All right, first of all, it's a hot mess. It's so loud, which is why I picked it for the place to dump him, because I figured he won't even hear it. But not only that, it's so aggressive. Like, I once went, I swear to God, I went to a hockey game where I saw men, drunk, ugly men, lift a chair and throw it. Now, what makes that remarkable, that chair was bolted to the ground. <laughs> they didn't like a call, and they just threw the chair at that like plastic shield that's supposed to keep us away from the hockey pucks or whatever, and the guys have no teeth in there. It's just, it's not my thing. It's not my, I'm, I mean, I went to see a course line 12 times. It's not like my thing. There you go. All right, so I think this is it. Okay, and I figure if the Islanders win, he'll be happy. It'll be louder, and he'll be happy. He won't even notice. Maybe he doesn't even really like that much. He just doesn't know how to break up with me. Maybe he's nice as I am. Okay, so the first quarter, the second quarter, third, the game is going, the puck, and I don't know what's going on. I'm not Really paying attention because I'm nervous, I know. I gotta tell Larry, I'm dumping him. I don't wanna do it. Okay, it's like the last minute of the game, and I know it's this is it. I got I gotta tell him. So I get ready, and we're gonna win. We're up by a lot of points. I'm thinking, oh, he's happy. So I start to turn to him, and he takes my knee and he says, Can we talk? Yes, yes! He's gonna say it's not you, it's me. This is it. I have once again committed to my act here. So I say yes, and I don't say anything, and he puts his hand in his coat pocket. Yes! He takes out a velvet box. It gets worse! He opens the said box, and inside is what appears to be a great neck flashlight on a ring band. It's like, you know when something is so bright it illuminates a room like a disco ball? This ring was so big and shiny, and he just says, will you marry me? And I, for the first time, am without words, because you can imagine I'm always talking. So I smile, and the only thing that I can think of saying no, thank you. I'm nice. I don't know what else to say. I'm just so shocked. And he says, really? I said, Larry, we've been going out for six months. You're a great guy. We hardly know each other, and we're babies. We have a whole life to live. Now, in my head, I'm already thinking, no, you're not for me. I'm going to be like a Broadway gypsy. I'm going to have a trunk like Gypsy Rose Lee with stickers on it from around the world doing bus and truck and be married and living in Great Neck. I said, no, we're too young, and I really think we should take a little beat here and maybe take some time out. And he starts to cry. I know! And he's such a nice, big, electronic prince. He's crying. Okay, it gets worse, if you can imagine. 
So he says, okay, well then you have to do me one last favor. Okay, and I'm thinking, I'll do anything at this time. You can, you can fillet me, you can stick me out on the back on a, on a flagpole, whatever. You can do whatever you want because I'm a horrible person. He said, you have to come back to my house in Great Neck because my parents have catered an engagement party. Yes! Yes! Can you imagine? They brought in from Ben's Deli, which, by the way, is very good and very expensive. Those smoked meats don't pay for themselves. So he says, you have to pretend tonight that we are getting married. So I say, sure. And I'm thinking, yeah, I studied with the Sanford Meisner School of Acting. I was one of Lee Strasberg's last students. Fucking all, I can, I'll just do some sense memory. I'll get, I got this. So I said, fine. So it's a long drive when you're not talking to somebody from the, not only is it a long drive from the hockey stadium to Great Neck, do you know what it's like to get out of a sports arena when you stay till the end and you're just sitting there like queuing up waiting to get out the fucking parking lot? So I'm sitting there with this sad, angry Jewish boy with nice Jewish hair who's going to be, he's probably so wealthy now, and I'm wearing, I have to wear this ring that is already giving me like a pinched nerve in my shoulder. It's so big and it's nice, but mm. all right, so we get there and I know that I have to just suck it up and be the best actor it's possible. So we get there in this nice house, and his mother answers the door. And she's so nice with her like lip liner, and she smells like a Shalimar or whatever. She has like on a she looks like Mrs. Roper, you know. And 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 the husband's got a cigar. And the house. I walk in. It's so bright. I mean, you can imagine in the lighting business what this would be like. There are like. Dimmers on sconces and chandeliers, and you don't know where to look first. And all the furniture's covered in plastic slipcovers, which is like beaming off the lights. You know, it's like some kind of Epcot Center experience. So, and then there are all these aunts and uncles, and they're peppering me with questions like, where will you go on your honeymoon? And, and, and when are you getting married? And where should we do it? Let's do it here at the house. And I'm thinking my ass will get stuck to the slip cushion, like the plastic slip covers. So when I just lie, yes, yes, yes. Okay, an hour of this goes by. I've hoard myself for an hour. And finally, I say to Larry, I said, okay, I did my part. I gotta go home before I say something that's gonna really fuck this whole like mirage up. And he says, okay, thank you, I appreciate it. And we bid farewell, I think I claim I had like, I don't know, some sort of pain in my side, I don't know. So we leave and we get going and we don't say a word back to Queens. He drives me home and I hand him back the flashlight and I'm thinking this would have paid for four years at NYU and take your ring back. And I get out of the car, I say, I'm so sorry, Larry, I hope you find someone who really loves you and takes care of you. And I never, I mean, that's it, I get out. So, okay, now here's the thing, especially if there are young people here tonight and you're single, this is a very important lesson. I want you to hear my words, okay? There is a huge difference between being nice and being kind. If you're kind, you're honest. You tell people what you think about them. You don't have to do it right away, but you do it nicely in a way where you're telling them this isn't gonna happen, so you're not setting them up for this sort of behavior. Now, if you're nice, you wind up in a room 
filled with oh, lovely people in caftans staring down a platter of sweaty meats. And I am telling you, this is not a life path that anybody needs to be on. Thank you. I also wanted you to know, I, you probably didn't hear this, but when you said you saw a chorus line 12 times, the girl at the bar goes, I am so jealous. <laughs> so I want you to know your people are here. Good. They're here in the room. And I was almost in a chorus line, but I wasn't, so it doesn't really fucking matter. Oh, yeah. You know what? My chorus line story is, um, I don't know why they did this, but in the neighboring town where I used to do musicals in the summers, I think they felt bad for me. They wrote a part for me. Aww. Yeah, but like, who adds to a chorus line? I, but I probably had like one line and like I was in the kick line and like, and you're out, Gelfin, bye. Right. Yeah. So, Tutu Girl, what's your real name? Patty. Patty? Yeah. Come on up. Okay. Yeah, get it for Patty. One singular sensation, every little step she takes. Oh my God, I love this audience. <laughs> we love you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for being here, Patty. Tits and us. All right, um, I want you to read the name of the story you're about to read and then get right up on that microphone and okay. take it away. Is this? Yeah, I'm a little she's short. A pro. She's like, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> the right name. Ouch. That was quite a horse-making session. <laughs> you are such a Lothario, Seymour, with your Kafka-esque magenta hair and that madly distinguished skydiver on your face. You are the tutu of masculinity. I'd imagine you are preaching off ladies with a mountain as they vie for your attention. Now don't you go and get a big arm over all this praise I'm giving you, sir. Your humility is one of your rambunctious qualities, much like your slippery memory. <laughs> After so many women, the fact that you remembered my name during our love schwitzing is impressive. <laughs> and I thank you for it. You are so charming that I'm going to longingly ignore the fact that I, along with the last 17 women you've dated, are all named Hillary. <laughs> That flawless Mad Libs reading came to us care of Patty Devery from Big Gay Ice Cream, whose ice cream, by the way, is beyond. They have so many yummy flavors, and my favorite is the Salty Pimp. They put dulce de leche and a little bit of salt in a wafer cone and fill it with vanilla soft serve. It is so good. And I have to say, a Salty Pimp seems like the perfect way to top off a night of love schwitzing. And before the Mad Libs, we heard a hilarious story from the very talented Sandy Marks. Can you believe Sandy did that? She is way too nice. You can find Sandy on Twitter at Sandy Marks. All right, so if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or just started listening and you like what you hear, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It'll help boost our ratings within iTunes and let more people know about it. All right, next up is Adam Lynn. Adam is the author of the novel American Sexy. He's performed on the Moth main stage, as well as NPR's Snap Judgment. This is his story about the huge risk he took when he lived in San Francisco. Mike, 
I've known you for 12 years, Robin Gelfenbein. I knew, I knew Robin before she was the ice cream cake lady, before she was even the famous hot dog lady. So, okay. I was lost. Not literally lost. I knew where I was. I was in San Francisco, and it was the spring of 1998, but I had lost my way. See, I had moved out to California from Boston a few months before with the promise of a dream job. And when I got there, there was a hiring freeze. Yeah. So I find myself in the most expensive city in America, no job, student loans, no prospects, a complete failure in my own eyes. And what made this really sting was that no one, especially my mother, had wanted me to leave Boston for California in the first place. And this was actually the culmination of a 10-year battle I'd been having with my mother about moving to California. It started when I was in high school. I got this idea in my head, maybe freshman year, that what I would do is study really, really hard and that I would get into Stanford. I just got this in my head. I will get into Stanford, which is such a great school that no one, not even my clingy mother, could say <laughs> I couldn't go to California. And so I studied, and I put my head down. And senior year, the letters are coming out from the colleges, and I get the envelope from Stanford. I open it up, and I got in. I got into Stanford, right? It was like this volcano of joy in my stomach, like, I'm going to California. I don't know about the rest of you, right? So there's my mother in the dining room, and she's got the envelope in her hand, and I turn around just like, so, Mom, it's Stanford. You know, what do you think? What do I think? What do I think, smart guy? What do I think? I think a guy like you is not jumping on a plane and going out to California, because if a guy like you gets on a plane and goes out to California without a clue, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to join a cult, you're going to get hooked on heroin, you're going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> John and Kyle talked on heroin, jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was always in that order. Now I understand that logically the bridge does have to conclude the sequence, but I mean, you, you could flip the heroin and the cult just to, to mix it up a little sometimes. But, and, and, and she said this a lot. M many, many, she thought this through. And so I had this image of me in saffron robes with a hypodermic in my neck and just. And just you know, falling to the cool Pacific air, the dark water of the bay under me. And this is not the image you want to have on what should be, you know, one of the happiest days of your life. So I was very angry at my mother for having acted this way. So now here I was, all these years later, I, I got my courage up and I said, you know, screw this. I'm moving to California. And I get out there and I fall on my face. And I had plenty of free time drinking a lot of Pete's coffee, I'm walking around DeBose Park, and I get a telephone call from an old friend of mine, Tim. And he and I had been close when we were young, but we'd gone different paths. I went to college, he went into the police academy, and it turned out he was in California, and he was gonna be in San Francisco, and could he crash on my couch for a few days? And so, you know, if you're young and you're far from home, the familiar voice is great. So, Tim shows up, and he was the perfect house guest for what I needed right then. He's a big bear of a guy, and he likes playing the tourist, very flamboyant. He's got a Hawaiian shirt on, and he's listening to Tony Bennett, and he's like, oh yeah, we're gonna do sourdough bread and cable cars, like every cliche, but it was exactly what I needed at that point in my life. It was great. So it was the last night of Tim's visit, 
And we were in the Tonga room at the Fairmont Hotel. If any of you know the Tonga, I mean, for those of you who don't know the Tonga, just imagine the tackiest tiki bar you've ever seen and, and put it on anabolic steroids. I mean, there are a 25-piece ukulele orchestra in the middle of a faux lagoon. It's, it's really, I mean, they're good at being over the top. It's unbelievable. So we're there at the table, and there's a, a, like a mock hurricane blowing, and Tim's hair is in the wind, and he is so in his element. He, you know, he's just... He just says, you know, I just, I envy you so much. You know, you got the world by the tail out here. And I, I said, Tim, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, I'm blind. I just moved out to California to get this job. I got no job. I got no money. I mean, the rent is unbelievable. Like, I don't know, you know, do I get on Prozac? Do I move home with my mother? I got, I don't know what to do. And I didn't realize it, but I had really touched a nerve with Tim because he was really admiring me being out there. And I, he's like, are, are you kidding me? I, I, I mean, you, you gotta be kidding me. You are the biggest complaining, bitching, moaning motherfucker I have ever met in my entire life. You were always like this, but now I think you're even worse. I mean, look at you. You're young, you got your health. You know, I mean, look around. Well, I mean, you can't do that, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, I'm stuck there in Boston being a cop doing whatever my family wants, and you out there, you know, the cojones come out here. I can't believe it. Stop complaining. Tell you what, take me for a drive. And he throws his car keys in the middle of the table. Now, a piece of information that I do have to give you right here is that when Tim and I were young, he had a GTO muscle car convertible. And because he was a cop, we could kind of get away with a lot of things. And so I had driven his car on a couple of occasions. <laughs> but this was in beach parking lots after parties on Cape Cod. I mean, this wasn't in a major metropolitan area. So uh, Tim gets up, he senses my hesitation, he puts his hand on my arm, he's like, what are you worried about? It's a rental. And so, <laughs> we go downstairs, we're on Mason Street, it's, it's a Buick Park Avenue, I get in on the driver's side, he gets in on the passenger side, and I keep thinking Tim's gonna say, ah, ha, ha, let's go back to your apartment, and maybe I'm hoping Tim will say that, right? So, I put the key in the ignition, turn the engine over, and I'm driving. We're on Mason Street. And, you know, Tim has obviously got to play navigator here. This is how we did it before. You know, so as we're driving along, you know, left, right, left, left, right, right, garbage truck, garbage truck, garbage truck, left, left, right, right, give him the horn, the horn, the horn, give him the horn. And, and, and after a few minutes of this, I'm done. I'm okay. This, this is enough, enough, enough. We've proven your point. Tim, we're, we're okay, let's, we're done. I said, Tim, you know, let's pull over, you take the wheel, okay? And he makes this sound like, what are you, crazy? He's like, ah, you know, he's like, I didn't come all the way out here just to drive up and down this little street. He's like, you know, I kind of thought this out ahead of time a little bit, maybe. Uh, you know, let me just bounce this idea off of you, you know? Uh, uh, and maybe you know, maybe you don't know, I know. Has any blind guy ever driven a car over the Golden Gate Bridge? Um, uh, uh, one. I looked in Guinness World Record record. I don't know. I never heard of this. I just think if you drove us over the bridge, that'd be something to tell our grandkids, huh? And, and this is where I, I could have said no. And, uh, and, uh, and one would think I should have said no, right? But I, I, already, I already told you. I was lost. I felt like I didn't have a lot to live for. Uh, so rather than saying no, I said, okay, but 
Uh, we've got to change the music. I, 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 I will not do this to Tony Bennett. So, Tim Russell's around on the floor. He puts in another CD. And this is where I have to make a quick aside here. This, this is very important. I am by no means blaming or, or trying to implicate uh, Tina Turner in, 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 in anything I did that night. I take responsibility for my actions. But as we drove down the hill toward the bridge and the opening notes of River Deep, Mountain High came pouring from the speakers of that car, and I heard Tina say, when I was a little girl, uh, something happened in my head, and my foot went to the floor, and, and we hit that bridge doing about 60. So, <laughs> and the windows were down, and that cold Pacific air was coming through like a river, and that music was loud, and I was alive, let me tell you. I was alive in a way I had never been before, what they call a peak experience, right? So I'm in that moment, and then as we drive in the middle span of the bridge, I hear a voice. I hear that voice, that voice I can never get away from, right? Donna Kyle took the heroin, jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, right? No, right no. So, so now, not only am I blind and a little drunk and driving a car with the Golden Gate Bridge, now I'm fighting with a woman who's 3,000 miles away, right? I'm, you know what, Mom? I am not in a cult, first of all, and I'm not hooked on heroin, okay? And I'm not jumping off the bridge. I'm just maybe blind and driving over the bridge, okay? And yes, I recognize that they are maybe in the same ballpark, but... So now I'm losing an argument to my mother in my head as I'm driving the car, and that's not good. And what made that particularly embarrassing was that, you know, in the intervening years since our battle over Stanford, I'd learned a secret, one of the secrets about my family. We're a family of secrets. And uh, <laughs> when I was very small, my father disappeared and was gone for years and years and years. He was never in my life. And what I didn't know when I was a kid was that he had gone to San Francisco. And while he hadn't joined a cult or jumped off the bridge, he had done a lot of drugs, and he had dropped out of society pretty much forever. So, mm, yeah, when I said I wanted to move to California, mm, uh, I could kind of understand, a little bit at least, why my mother felt the way she had. And now, here I was, 25, drunk, driving a car over the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm proving her right! Oh, no! So, well... Luckily, we made it across the bridge. And I drove us through Marin a little bit, and then Tim took the wheel and got us back to my apartment. And a few weeks later, my mom came out to visit slash check up on me. And I had this perverse moment where I thought I might needle her by telling her the driving story, but I knew she couldn't handle it. And so I did, I did not tell her that story. Instead, I read her a children's book that I'd written with all my free time wandering around the park. And she surprised me. She did something that she never does. Uh, she put her, her face in her hands, and she started crying. Um, and I thought, is she that ashamed of me? I mean, I'm, and, 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 and she looked up, and she, and she said, you know, I'm very, very proud of you. You know, you're, I admire you. I admire your courage. I, I tried to make you not move out to California. You did it. Whatever happens, I support you. And, you know, that 
that felt good. That made me feel very, uh, that meant so much to me. And at that time, I was young. I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know what to do. So I did something that uh, is kind of typical of my mother and me. We went to Blondie's, a lesbian bar in the Mission, and, and just got <laughs> smashed on oversized martinis. And, and I do not drive anymore. I don't drive anymore. I have a wife and children, a dog, all the trappings of a middle-class life, a lot to live for, right? So then the other night, I get a call from my mother. And it's late, and the tinkle of ice in the glass. And she starts in on, you remember that kid Greg Halloran you went to high school with? You remember that kid? No, yeah. I'm looking right here, Boston Globe. They just made him commissioner of the Parks Department. Just made, I, it's hard to believe. I mean, imagine what you could have been if you stayed here. I mean, I bet if you moved home now, left New York, I bet they could make you de deputy commissioner. <laughs> and I started thinking about San Francisco and the bridge and the feel of the pedal under my foot. And as my mother talked on and on and on, I imagined slowly pushing that pedal all the way to the floor. <laughs> Thank you. Daredevil Lynn. <laughs> Let me tell you something. He last week was featured on Tablet Magazine, uh, Tablet Magazine's podcast, and what were you, which honor were you bestowed with? Much to my surprise, I was Gentile of the Week. Right? <laughs> I'll, I'll hook you up, Alex. It, 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 I, I complained that I couldn't be Jew of the Week. And I they think said you that mean that was, you kvetch. I kvetched, right. I kvetched that I couldn't be Jew of the Week, and they said that was a, the most Jewish thing that ever heard. So <laughs> It was a Shonda, let me tell you. <laughs> Isn't Adam's story nuts? So crazy to me. You can find Gentile of the Week, Adam Lynn, on his website, Adam Lynn, that's L-I-N-N dot com. And you can hear another one of his incredible stories, which was also featured on Snap Judgment on one of our earlier podcast episodes uh, from last year. It is a doozy. If you thought that story was insane, this one is even harder to believe. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles, our next live show is at Le Poisson Rouge on Thursday, October 13th, which is the day after Yom Kippur. So we're doing the second edition of Yom's The Word, A Night of Jewish Storytellers. We'll have stories from Joanna Solotaroff from Two Dope Queens, Ophira Eisenberg, who's the host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and more. Plus, I'll be doing a Yiddish quiz again Hi. with each of the storytellers to test their Yiddish knowledge. You can get tickets for that show and details at yumsthewordshow.com. Hope to see you at the live show. And if you can't make it, no problem. You can follow all the fun the night of the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat at yumsthewordshow. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, who wrote some of the music. And the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Matt Fiddler, Michael Cedar, Danny Ortiz, Megan Deneen, and Carly Patron. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening. Hope you get a piece. Happy New Year to all of my fellow Hebes. To Kia! And until next time... The fact that you remembered my name during our love schwitzing is impressive. <laughs> Yum's the word.